You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Mompos, Bolivar. That's uh, five and a half hours south from Cartagena and the sultry Caribbean coast, Colombia. And this is episode 479 of the Colombia Calling podcast. This week's very special guest is none other than writer Sarah Wheeler. We had the opportunity to meet here in Mompos back in February, and then I was able to circle back and get her on on the podcast just a week ago now. So she's our new episode and we're talking about her travel writing, her life in travel, and indeed the book that she's got out in the markets now, which is Glowing Still. And it's about her life on the road, a woman's life on the road, a fantastic recollection looking back through her diaries uh, some years ago and, and, you know, interpreting the occasions and uh, whatever's going on somewhat differently all these years later. So a great conversation with someone we are greatly honored to have on the show. Thank you so much to Dave Proctor, of course, for last week's episode on the uh, uh, on the La Leyenda mountain bike race, the multi-stage mountain bike race. It has gone off without a hitch, as you'll gladly know, uh, in the coffee zone this past week. And of course, prior to that, we had Paula Ferrero of Moshi Foods uh, talking about chocolate. And then, of course, the Halo Trust with Ollie Ford, of course, uh, you know, searching, seeking out and demining, humanitarian demining in Colombia. I'll leave you in the capable hands now of Emily Hart. And then, of course, we'll be back with Sarah Wheeler discussing her latest book, her future projects, and, of course, all sorts of other great things. Fancy helping us out? That's www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. Thank you again. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's www.columbiacalling.co, or the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's www.bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive Colombian adventure. So that's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your headlines for the week of July 24th, 2023. The Minister for Mines, Irene Vélez, has resigned from her post. Both the Prosecutor's Office and the Attorney General's Office had opened investigations against her for peddling of influence. She resigned, saying that the investigations against her would interfere with the execution of the government's agenda. Velez's husband had obtained a large contract with the fund Colombia in Peace attached to the presidency, and it was later discovered that Velez had pressured a migration official in relation to her own son's departure from the country. She was considered a part of President Gustavo Petro's inner circle and had already survived two motions of no confidence in the legislative, 
often a controversial figure in part due to her stance on energy transition and the decarbonisation of Colombia's economy. It is not yet clear who will replace her, but with this departure, 11 ministers have now left the cabinet within this first year of government. The cabinet is composed of 18 ministers. The second legislative period of Petro's government has now been installed, with health and pension reforms in later stages and the labour and education reforms to be presented from scratch in coming months. This second session faces a more divided path to the implementation of the government's reform agenda. Following recent declarations of independence from the government by the Conservative and EU parties, as well as growing divides in the Liberal and Green parties, the government no longer holds a majority coalition in the Senate or in the House of Representatives. They will therefore have to negotiate temporary coalitions around specific legislation and reforms. Opposition parties themselves, however, unsuccessfully attempted to create a coalition against the government this week. Ivan Name, supported by opposition and traditional parties, will be the president of the Senate for this session, while Andres Kaje from the Liberal Party will lead the House of Representatives. Name's election in particular has been seen as a major political blow for Petro, beating government candidate Angelica Lozano. In his inauguration speech for this legislative session, the president announced that he will be proposing a reform to the country's mining code, as the current code privileges multinational and large-scale mining. Colombia's Secretary of Transparency has presented a report on justice in regards to corruption over the last 13 years. There were, say the report, nearly 58,000 corruption complaints between 2010 and 2023, of which 94% did not lead to convictions. The report says that the statute of limitations and the lack of prosecution of these crimes leaves the vast majority unpunished. 62% of departments in Colombia have an impunity rate higher than 95%. The rate for capital city Bogotá is 88%. Debate continues around whether or not Ivan Márquez, leader of dissident FARC group Segunda Marquetalia, is in fact dead. A media outlet with links to the group reported that he was alive this week. The government has maintained silence after numerous national outlets reported Marquez's death last week. His death would in any case be a largely symbolic loss for the group, as he is now considered a figurehead more than a commander as such. At least 14 people have died after a landslide in Cundinamarca following heavy rains this week. Many more are still missing. This month's heavy rain caused a sudden swelling of a river which overflowed and destroyed more than 20 homes. The landslide also reached the main road between Bogotá and Colombia's eastern plains, destroying a bridge and blocking access. This week, the Colombian peso broke the floor of 4,000 pesos to the dollar, falling to 3,991, making it the most revalued currency amongst the major Latin American economies, and, according to newspaper The Financial Times, the most revalued emerging economy currency in the first half of this year, gaining 14.3% against the US dollar. La Costa Nostra, a new book by Laura Ardila about the power of the Char clan, which was denied publication at the last minute by publishing giant Planeta amid claims of censorship, will be published next month, after all, by publisher Rey Naranjo, supported by a network of independent publishers, and freedom of expression groups in Colombia. As part of the massive current crackdown on organised crime in El Salvador, police have arrested more than 100 Colombian citizens over alleged involvement in a microfinancing scheme that laundered money. The group allegedly created loans using funds obtained illegally, loans which, upon failure to repay, would result in the group intimidating victims into giving over their bank details, which they then used to move money abroad. $20 million in money linked to drug trafficking gangs is estimated to have been sent to Colombia in the last two years through the scheme. Colombia's foreign ministry said it was in talks with the embassy and consulate in El Salvador, while lawyers claim that human rights are being violated and they are detained in unsafe conditions. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening.
And we're back. This is Columbia Calling, episode 479. I'm Richard McCulkey, your host in Mompos Bolivar. That's six hours south from Cartagena. My very special guest this week, well, for anyone who knows anything about the writing world, is writer Sarah Wheeler on the line from North London. So welcome on the Columbia Calling podcast, Sarah. Thank you very much indeed. I wish I was in Colombia, in fact. Well, yeah, but between Hampstead and Mompos, I would choose Mompos. But of course, no, I don't want to alienate my listeners or any listeners in Hampstead, of course. But Sarah, you <laughs> were recently in Colombia for the first time and we met here in Mompos. It was a great honor and a pleasure to sit down and, and, and chat to you here. Well, it was an honor and a pleasure for me too. Yes, I've been longing to come to Colombia for the, absolutely years on and decades, really. Um, I suppose since I was spent six months in Chile um, three or four decades ago for a book I wrote about that country and kind of fell in love with the whole scene and kind of stuff seeps in, doesn't it, about other um, from other countries when you're um, when you're on the continent. And I think Chileans have some sort of affinity with Colombians. And um, I'd wanted to visit ever since. And with me, you know, each book tends to take about three years and I tend not to do any travelling during that period except the country I'm writing about in some way or other. And, you know, years went by and I never came. So I'm absolutely thrilled that 2023 was the year I visited and I had the, the best time and three weeks was nowhere near enough. Of course, just the briefest um, taste uh, and I absolutely loved it. So you'll be coming back. We, I think we can we can surmise from that. I I hope so. Yes, I hope so. I travelled around largely on those marvelous buses, which um, we would call them coaches in in the UK, and they were so great because one so high up, you know, that you get a great um, three hundred and sixty degree almost view. Or 180 degrees anyway, and air conditions and people getting on, uh, selling you delicious things, and usually a nice driver to chat to. And there was hardly anybody ever on the bus with me. <laughs> and so, uh, for an old lady like me, a sort of long six or seven hour daytime journey, I'm certainly way too old to do the overnighters. Um, I feel I've put my time in as far as that's concerned. Um, it just couldn't have been a more lovely way of, of seeing the country, easy to book online. You know, it was just really tremendous and I, I um, saw as much as one can see I guess in three weeks I mean I, I sit still for quite a lot as well because I I'm, don't see the point in just sticking bits off so I've seen nothing really but um, I had a, I had a taste. So you were, I think, was it, it was mainly the Caribbean coast and then some of the interior into around Bucaramanga was it? Yes that's right I got the bus from Cartagena up to you in uh, Mompos and uh, then I I got the bus um, up to Bucamaranga, which was absolutely fantastic, staying at a couple of places um, en route, spent some time there. Then I flew down to Medellin in order to go to the Pacific coast. And that, of course, was something else entirely um, that I wasn't expecting, didn't know anything about, and realised just how cut off it seems. And I talked to many people as I could um, of when I was there, but it just seems like a land that, yeah, has like another country that's been cut off, really. And um, I'd be interested to find out how it does on all the social indices. Maybe you can tell me on Colombia, because I feel that it probably hasn't been pulled along um, like the other provinces have. But of course, it was stupendously beautiful, really easy to uh, travel there as well. A lot of beach life, a lot of long walks uh, and, um, you know, scrambling up to the waterfalls and all the rest of it. All the things people do on the Pacific coast um, and talked to a lot of sort of old pirates who were marooned there. A lot of them had been um, on further islands and so they sort of couldn't stand it anymore and had, had to move to civilization. Um, i.e. Um, <laughs> the coastline there. Um, but they had some great stories. And, of course, some terrible stories about the bad times, which we didn't go into. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, one's read enough uh, to know about that. Um, 
And so sort of a lot of people in flight and had settled down there. But yeah, um, I got a taste, a taste of, of those those areas. Mm. I, that that whole issue, well, the indices in, in the, the Choco, the Pacific Coast, lag behind, I think is the most polite way of putting it, lag well, behind. That's, that's what I meant. That's what I suspected. Uh, I love that you... you you say the the sort of the old pirate sh, you know sort of abandoned or shipwrecked there that had been on other islands and then come back and had to move into civilization and you get this idea of moving into civilization being biosolano or, or so on it's still exactly. quite a limited I think Barcelona itself would have been too much like the metropolis. It was a sort of a little village on the outskirts of Barcelona, population three. That was uh, the, the big smoke was that was for them. Um, I, years ago, I met a, a couple. I think he was originally American, but it's kind of almost forgotten to, how to speak English because it's been there so long. Nancy and Enrique. And it was so funny. We were years ago. We just sat and, and chatted and so on, and heard the whole story. And they had to leave, obviously, from the bad years, from where they were. You know, they had a sports fishing outfit and so on in the nineties and what have you. But I, I, I'll never forget. I guess when you you brought up in the U.S. in Los Angeles, I, I think in a bilingual family, but he must have spoken fluent English at one point. But for some reason, the topic of and. Uh, amusement parks came up and why we were talking about amusement parks is like well you know this is an amusement park but it's a natural amusement park and he's like yeah not like the one with the rat and i was like what's he talking about ah yeah. disney disney but he'd forgotten what mouse is and of course raton mouse oh that's like, very but funny. i thought it was a fantastic way of not like the one with the rat and i was like the rats no, yeah it's but not it's, wrong is it <laughs> it's not wrong. no it's not wrong it's not wrong yeah they're sort of very hemingway-esque those figures aren't they who are marooned there with sports fishing think of that. And, yeah uh, no i i mean you we 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 had some we had some time to chat while you were here in Montpos, and you did an amazing monologue for the bbc from our own correspondent about you know this former trading post and uh and its importance back in the day but by absolute chance you were here in Montpos at the same time as friends of yours i mean this doesn't happen in the middle of nowhere in colombia <laughs> i know and we only found out we did find out in advance but only by chance happened to be chatting on the phone a couple of weeks before uh, talking about getting together and my friend Tony said oh we're going to be in Colombia and I said oh I'm going to Colombia and they had a very uh, complicated and itinerary going all over and uh, we compared all the dates so it turns out we were going to be in Montpos at the same time absolutely incredible so um, it was really nice for me yeah. to spend time with uh, Tony and his husband they were exploring just like I was yeah. and sort of sitting around as well and in fact, when I went over on the ferry, the public ferry from Montpost to the other side, mentioned <laughs> in that piece, uh, Tony Tony came with me. Oh, just to do it, and, and of course, one one of them, one of them, Peter or Tony, was a. Uh... Is related to Sir Francis Drake. We had just a we had a very brief conversation about it because I had been a couple of months previously up in Portobello in 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 Panama, where supposedly he's you know it, it put he was put to rest in a lead coffin there. So it all connects, and it's just one of those things that you love when you're in my business. You just love it because you've got people who have great conversation, you know. And I think it always reminds me of a. Is it the Thirty Nine Steps by by John Buck? And when when he's up there somewhere in the north of England and, and says, "I think it would be great to be an innkeeper," and he's talking to the innkeeper because so many interesting people coming through, and that's when it that sort of came together. When you get these kind of conversations, it comes together for me. And then and other people leave books and so on. And you're here chatting about your your various projects, and and for me, this is the this is where it becomes so worthwhile. And so that said, I mean, you are so well traveled and you are so, uh, you know, worldly on this. What was amazing to me is once you, when you got in touch to say you were coming to Montpos, there was a, a little, a little quote in there just saying, I'm reasonably well traveled. Uh, <laughs> and I just thought, I know who you are, Sarah Wheeler. <laughs> I know what you've done. I read, uh, Cherry, 
about the uh, about uh, what's it? Why uh, Apsley Cherry? What's it? I can't remember the full oh, name. Nice. Yeah, Apsley Cherry Garrard. Yeah, from, I was known from, as Cherry. Yeah, yeah. I've read well, that. I know who you are <laughs> about the, the expeditions. You're reasonably well traveled. I doubt that I've ever met anyone more traveled than you. So <laughs> I thought it was very kind uh, and very nice <laughs> that you wrote a thing like that that was so, I would say, self deprecating. Well, I'm sure you have met people who are more traveled. <laughs> and um, I, uh, I'm sure I didn't, just didn't want you to uh, feel that I required. Um, any looking after? <laughs> okay, well, fair, fair enough to that. But all the time, let's let's talk about your your projects. Let's talk about those as well. We'll come back into mm-hmm. Colombia a bit more. You have a book out called Glowing Still, and it's kind of a reflection on yourself looking back at younger years on the road, and now sort of interpreting them at from the present day. How's the reception been? Yeah, it's been really good. I think the reviewers have been really kind, and I'm going around the country to lots of literary festivals at the moment. I was in Derbyshire yesterday um, talking about it. Um, it's really a travel memoir, Glowing Still. Um, so it's a story of all my decades on the road. So first of all, what's happened to travel in that time, which is everything. I mean, when I started out, Richard, it was morally good to travel. It showed you're interested in the other. You weren't a little Englander. You wanted to go beyond. It was a good thing. Now, as you know, you're a big villain. Uh, If you go anywhere, first of all, hydrocarbons, an issue that regrettably is not going to go away anytime soon, burning up aviation fuel and all the rest of it, not really allowed to go anywhere unless you walk. Secondly, uh, coronavirus. I mean, that also regrettably is not going to go away anytime soon. Not a great idea to sit in a tin tube. Um, Thirdly, voice appropriation. It's become very zeitgeisty. Uh, who am I to start telling the stories of people in the global south? Those stories belong to them. And then, of course, the fourth horsewoman of the apocalypse, which is, well, we've been everywhere. So I wanted to really look at, well, where does that leave us? And where are we going from here? Mm. Um, And recap sort of in some way my travelling life. And I got down all my notebooks, which are on my office shelf, on shelves rather, um, like sort of standing to attention like soldiers with the, the countries that they that they cover written on the spine usually in tipex and looked through them started looking through them which as you can imagine was rather a gripping undertaking first of all I'd forgotten so much and secondly I'd left out so much I thought why did I leave out these some of these stories which were the best and also stories I knew perfectly well why I'd left them out because they were so hugely embarrassing and all the rest of it <laughs> and it was really trying to tie together glowing still the threads um of the things that had preoccupied me during those years and to set down what I thought was interesting or important or funny. Um, for example, an environmental component, obviously, you can't, you can't travel these days without thinking about that. And uh, the year after I was born, Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring, one of the most important environmental books uh, ever published. And when you think, so we knew... In 1962, we knew, well, why didn't we do anything? Uh, And I've kind of seen the world through the lens of those kind of preoccupations everywhere I've been. Feminism's another one. I kind of caught the break of the second wave. Um, And so I tried to sum up all of that or or draw it together and make something of it, make some sort of coherence insofar as there's ever any coherence in anything. And also show the world sort of spooling by behind me. I tried to to show a couple of, you know, if you have a few scenes where I was when um, the kind of key events of of my life, historical events, have unfolded. Um, I remember being at a hotel in Shanghai, I wrote about, for example, on the 1st of May 1997. Nobody of my generation that grew up under Margaret Thatcher will forget that day. And I was on an assignment for a magazine and then just arrived at a business hotel in Shanghai about to go further afield. I was writing a piece about an artist. And I remember turning on the um, television in this business hotel and getting BBC World. And it was all those images of Tony Blair shaking hands with everybody at the Royal Festival Hall. And it was like a new dawn as those sort of pink clouds unfurled over Shanghai. And it was all, you know, wonderful. And one doesn't forget things like that. Um, and of course, nor does nor is one aware of how that dawn 
turned out for all of us. So I tried to share the 62 years going by of my life and um, uh, through my through my travels and um, all the rest of it. And I must say, um, it was massively enjoyable, a massively enjoyable thing to do. Was it quite cathartic as well, going back and seeing what's funny now or what may have been funny then? You know, there's, there's different. Yeah, so it was very know. cathartic. It was very cathartic settling some scores. Although I feel like I've got another volume because there's some scores left unsettled. Um, the working title of the book was "Newbility to Invisibility" because it was from my twenties, you know, newbility on the road to invisibility, which is what women tend to be when they when they. Uh, can see 60 in the world in the rear view mirror mm. and um uh volume two will have to be called of course immobility so it was quite cathartic in a way and um i was chastened at how much i'd forgotten because mm. you sort of feel in a way slightly what's the point in doing it if you forget it all i know it nourishes one uh and helps one to grow but um it would be nice to hold on. Of course, it was great looking at my snaps as well, because for most of my travelling life, it has been snaps. I'm not I'm not a yeah. photographer thought, in, any, in a professional sense, but I take lots of snaps as um, aid memoir. Mm-hmm. So it literally is these sort of yellowing prints going right back. And uh, they were a tremendous help as well. And then we get on to the digital years, where we all say, don't we, that we're going to um, – codify them all and capture them all and put them into albums and all the rest of it and i don't know about you but i never get around to doing it no i you know i print off one or two of the children the family and uh, to have but that's it that's it i mean nothing else I know. nothing goes into an album anymore i, I, I yeah I, perhaps i should i i, I guess but <sighs> well the only thing i would say is i have to caption the work what ones i take for example if i'm working often in archives these days i take photographs of of material, you know, yeah. the printed world. And I've learned I really have to caption that properly yeah. as soon as I'm back in my office, otherwise it slips away. And for one's leisure stuff as well, it slips away. So these uh Proustian moments for writing, you know, the, the Chesuan, isn't it? It's uh, Proustian moments of, of of remembering. I fact, I still have some of my my old diaries from nineteen ninety five oh. in, in Ukraine. Uh, oh. and i have to say i think a lot i was a, i just finished school and i went for three months to teach english like uh, you know private school boy um but it was recently independent and i th- i find myself today thinking a lot about my students because of course as you say it's, oh. it's pre-internet it's pre-email it, and so i have the photos somewhere in london i wouldn't even know where they are actually but between someone's house and another's and of course every now and then i remember for example my oh i i remember my my ukrainian mother's name and i put it into google and stuff but again it's pre all these things it does nothing comes up and and it, she was in her 70s back then so i don't expect nice. her to be alive today yeah, she's made it. but you know i i just think that 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 sort of Obviously, with the current events taking place now, you one reflects. I mean, with all of your travel, you must have similar type of experiences where you spent a good amount of time with people that have left such an impact on you. And maybe it was, you know, we're talking of the seventies or so on, in an era where we still wrote letters, <laughs> uh, and and these things just fall by the wayside. Yeah, I think about some of those people a lot. Um, I lived in Greece in 1982 for a year, and um, a lot of those uh, young people my age, you know, in Athens, uh, 20s, people in their 20s, I hung around with, and they were good times. Everything was cheap. We used to go out dancing all the time. And (laughs) I think about those people a lot. Um, And like you, the idea of tracking them down is all pre-internet. Um, half the time, I can't. I don't even know their last names. Even yeah. if I do, they're not that unusual. The names, I don't know what ha- you know. It seems like almost an impossible task. Mm. I do think about them a lot. I do, and then individual people will pop into my head as well. And I, I kind of hope that um, if I make it to a really old age and I can't go anywhere and I'm sitting, you know, dribbling. I hope that I can think about all those people then, and it'll that'll be food and travelling back, and I hope the memories will sustain in some way when I can't make more. 
Yeah, well, I think I'm sure they will because again, writing things down, taking photographs, it all helps Im- imprint it on yourself. And I, one of your one of your quotes about uh, you know from the book and what you've been doing in the in the publicity rounds, if you said that you're you're still glowing or glowing still, sorry, glowing still is is very much meeting a younger me. Um, yes, getting all those notebooks down, it's like meeting myself coming back. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it really was like meeting myself coming back. And I should say that the title, Glowing Still, going back to the environmental theme, comes from another book, I mentioned Silent Spring, another really important environmental book published in the 60s by J.A. Baker called The Peregrine. Again, you read it and you think, we knew all of that and did absolutely nothing about it. And he says, Baker says in this book, The Peregrine, uh, that planet Earth was... Dying, a dying planet like Mars, but glowing still. And that's what I took the title from. Okay. Well, that's a good way of explaining that, definitely, because I was going to ask, but I thank you for doing that because I was like, glowing still, is it a is it a reference to you know you and so on? But I like more that it's a reference to the, to the planet and so on. Um, there are things that I've been picking up when I've been doing my research, uh, Sarah, and uh, and so on. Uh, one of them, I mean, we, we'll we'll feed into one of them. But I, you've there's there's something you mentioned in the kind of this last intervention about the being the little Englander, where uh, now traveling and so on. And this is something I struggle with quite a lot, <laughs> um, uh, especially being out here in the middle of nowhere, feeling a bit like uh, you know some sort of colonial expansion. How in your in your you know you've obviously met lots of people in the same same positions as myself or sort of the uh, what's what's the name of the innkeeper in Haiti in Graham Greene's uh, <laughs> book there? Oh yeah, I can't remember his name. Yeah, pe- people have likened me to him and also uh, Basil Fawlty. But um, <laughs> so we, uh, I mean, how do you how do you sort of, sort of reconcile with that when you meet people and think of oh, these little Englanders uh, in the, in these places? When I meet them, you mean? When I meet the little yeah, Englander? Yes, because you're not, because you come and you go. And yeah, you go and well, ride. yeah, it's, it is difficult. I mean, I think that um, my attitude slightly was launched by my upbringing, mm. which was a working class Bristol in the 1960s, where nobody went abroad, nobody knew foreigners, uh, and we knew we didn't. They, everybody knew they didn't like foreigners or foreign lands even though they never met any foreigners and never been to any foreign lands but we knew that we didn't like them yeah. and that kind of mistrust of the other mm. um, made a deep very deep impression on me uh, politically and culturally um, and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't like that uh, so I mentioned that because I do hope things have got better um, and I have to believe that, uh, that they have. I mean, it's the writer's duty to have hope. Um, of course, uh, you know, I'm, I love living in a multicultural country and a multicultural um, city. I told you I was in Derbyshire yesterday for a literary festival, which was lovely. But it was very exotic being in Derbyshire because that isn't at all multicultural. Everybody's the same colour. And it seemed exotic to me living in London, which is, you know, so multicultural. So I have to believe that um, things are getting better, as I've said. I can see it's difficult if you live abroad as you do when they hove into view because you haven't got anybody to dilute them with. Um, I just think like so many negative things in this world, one has to try and rise above it and uh, think about um, all the people who aren't like that. Um, and I would say maybe try and gently engage, but actually I don't really think that's worth it because they've got their minds made up, haven't they? Well, yeah, I mean, we do get it quite a lot uh, as well. Not not actually here so much in Montpos, it's, it's in the bigger cities and so on. And it's like, oh, you know, you can always leave. I, I live here, and I have children here. <laughs> I'm not, not planning on leaving anytime soon. But uh, then this, as we're touching on a sort of more, a serious notes here and and you're doing an amazing job putting putting my mind at ease but uh there is a quote from i don't know where you wrote it uh and i think i'd like to say you put you put into uh, british men are the worst misogynists in the world uh 
what's it say? Uh, along <laughs> along with white South Africans coming close behind. Uh, I I like to think I'm not a misogynist, but I'm sure there's something there as well from an upbringing and and being British and so on. But where did this come from? Well, don't take it personally. I didn't say, <laughs> and I didn't say you. <laughs> um, it came from um, experiences I had in the Antarctic. I spent seven months in the Antarctic, which, as you know, is not owned by any nation, hmm. but many nations have bases there, including from your own continent. There are uh, Brazil, Brazilian base I went spent some time on, and uh, the Chilean base on um, King George Island, um, and uh, is there a Uruguayan base? I'm not sure. Anyway, um, it was an odd experience for me because I was in the field um, almost all the time, living in my tent. I was in the Antarctic for seven months, and with the different nationalities, scientists. And um, also spending time in between field camps at these bases. So I was very interested in the way in which when you're not in your own country, but you're in a tiny little bubble of your own country, how far nationality is uh, kind of in your DNA and how far it's entirely discarded when you're in an unowned land. And don't forget in the Antarctic, there's no time zones. There's no legal jurisdiction. So if you hit somebody over the head with an ice axe, who's going to charge you for it? Um, there's no um, structure or frame is probably a better analogy over anything. Um, everybody's free, and um, it's like the blanching of the of the ice fields is an analogy that's often used. And I find various things, but I find overwhelmingly that British men in the Antarctic. Um, had an attitude unlike the others, which basically meant they didn't want women there and they didn't want uh, people who weren't part of their own team there. And it was really because they still all thought they were Captain Scott. And um, one was going to um, break the myth in some way and um, didn't feel under any obligation to be nice to me whatsoever and behave like pigs, basically. And um, I saw a sort of reversion to... um, well, I would say public school and boarding school, but it's not a class issue at all. Um, it was something very male that was allowed to flourish um, in the Antarctic, which I didn't find at all, for example, on American bases. And I did come to the conclusion there's something unevolved about the British male, which I think is some sort of ghastly imperial legacy and so on. Now, that was 30 years ago, 30 years plus. And I think probably in a generation, that's what it is, isn't it, a generation? I think probably things have changed, even if all men know you're not allowed to behave like that now, even if they think it. Well, that's a step in the right direction. <laughs> but it, it sort of puts, you know, especially in somewhere like the Antarctic, I, I think, perhaps, it sort of puts us down as we are traveling to conquer the world. Um, I, I get well, that again, down. that was very obvious to me in the Antarctic, and that I started... Uh, reading about all the explorers those gripping you know stories of Shackleton and Norton Scott and all the rest of it and their own works I mean both Scott and Shackleton were great were really good writers well Shackleton had a ghostwriter who produced great books um uh, and the explorers since uh, particularly since really even to be an explorer is a little bit of a misnomer isn't it because we know what is everywhere but their attitude is very much that the Antarctic is another mammoth to be Club to death outside the cave. It was about conquering. And you hear the verb, don't you, conquer, uh, conquering the rest. Um, and I think that that is quite a male thing. It's quite an imperial thing. And I think that it's not how women see places and countries. It's not about conquering. It's not about capturing. It's not about ticking off. It's not about acquiring uh, or this whole hunter-gatherer, the mammoth thing, I think that um, women have a different attitude. I'd say, I'd say, the, the, yeah, I'd say you're completely right, of course. The ticking off, the ticking off, it's, it's again, frustrating to me, uh, especially being in the industry. Uh, we're doing this. We've done that. Uh, we've done Colombia. Uh, I, I can't, I can't get my head around it. Oh, we're, we're, Back in 2008, when we opened the Casa Maria, I remember people coming through fast. We're only staying one night. We're in a hurry to get to Peru because there's more to see. 
and I was just like, right, just, just just move on, <laughs> you know, just move on. There's more to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, obviously, travel has changed, and it's all Instagrammable, and 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 that's the sort of ticking off, isn't it? The the selfie mm. in front of Wine Apichu or the selfie in front of Iguazu or, or so Yeah, the, you sort of owned it by being there, yeah. I, yeah. I get that kind of feeling of conquering, isn't it? It's, there's a proof yeah. that you've been there. Proof, yeah. You're stopping short, of course, of, of uh, you know, uh, raising the flag. Uh, although, that said, um, I did happen to be at Puerto Inca many years ago again in Peru. And one of those big van truck travel companies came. And when they set up their tents, they raised their flags, which I found. I found that pretty invasive <laughs> back then. And I was just like, I think a lot of people would do that if they thought that they thought they had the, they could get away with it. Well, yeah, and they had the flags. I found that very, very sad, actually, that way yeah. of doing things. Now, there are... You well, you've got so much going on, and, and there's no way that we could fit it all in. And we've, you know, we've been quite, uh, we've reflected a fair deal on everything here in a brief amount of time. But I want to hear about your new project. That you know, you are, you are. I think you're neck deep in it now. But you're doing a biography of Jan Morris. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more. Well, first, I think to my listeners, who is Jan Morris? Okay. Yes, I'm writing the authorized biography of Jan Morris. Jan was a writer whose work really covered the whole, all the second half of the 20th century. Uh, she had the, she always said the centerpiece of her life, just talking about her work now, was the Pax Britannica trilogy, which is a three-volume history of empire, uh, written with great narrative flair. She wasn't a historian, she didn't use primary sources. Um, she used secondary sources and went everywhere. And um, I think most people would agree that those that trilogy is... It's quite something. She also wrote uh, very famous travel books um, about lots of places, notably Venice, a book that's been in print ever since it was published uh, in 1960. Um, and she uh, won every award going. She wrote 55 books and she was a big superstar and extremely entertaining. She's also known for a book about Trieste, 2001, um, Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere, and she did visit Colombia and wrote a very good, some two couple of very good essays in the sixties about um, Cartagena and Bogota. I think just those two, but the Cartagena one I, I do recommend. That was in the sixties uh, for the Guardian, in fact. And then it went between hardcovers um, in a collection of essays. And Jan, uh, well, there's two more things to say about Jan. One is she was a transgender woman. Um, She was born James Morris in 1926 and became Jan in 1972 when she had the operation in Casablanca. And I can say had the operation, which is rather a crude way of putting it, because she herself wrote a memoir about the operation uh, called Conundrum, which again is still in print. Um, and so now it makes it easier for me to mention the other thing, which is that as a, a man, Jan was a foreign correspondent for The Times and The Guardian. And in 1953, um, she was the correspondent selected by The Times to go on Sir Edmund Hillary and well, Sir John Hunt's expedition to Everest. Mm-hmm. The Times was sponsoring the expedition and um were allowed to send one journalist along and James Morris was selected. So she went along and um, got really high, actually, really high. And of course, once the two of them, uh, Tenzing and Hillary, came down and met up to this very high base where some of the rest of them were and gave this news, it was all marvellous, marvellous and wonderful celebrations and everybody was delighted and thrilled and so on, except for Jan, because she had to get the message down, which was no mean feat, especially as her rivals, the foreign correspondents from the Daily Mail and so on, were lurking behind every glacier. (laughs) And the story of getting that message down um, is told in Coronation Everest and has been told many, many times, was... um, Recently, in the latest um, anniversary, which was the 70th, of course, um, and will be told one of those great stories, which will be told until the end of time, of how Jan got the message down. So, Jan left us in 2020, and um, as I'm writing the authorized biography, yes, so I spend a lot of time at her um, 
house in uh, North Wales, which is currently unoccupied, um, and going through her um, books, uh, of which there are many thousands, and many of them have got le- letters tucked inside of them. And of course, it's the letters I'm most interested in. So um, I was there very recently, and uh, I sleep in Jan's bed, um, and there are bats living in the bedroom. <laughs> uh, and um, again, it's this it's a sleep of history, you know. And I find the fifties particularly gripping. And Jan was in the Middle East mm-hmm. um, before and after that Everest expedition, at a time of you know great change. And it was she who broke the Suez story um, in 56. And hmm. I find all that absolutely gripping. But you said I'm neck deep in uh, material. I feel more that um, it's over my head by several hundred feet. You know, I've completely buried <laughs> in it. So my task is going to be marshalling that material. This is not going to be a 600-page book. I feel really strongly nobody wants to read 600 pages on John. I want to read 300. So it's a question of gathering it all up and looking at it from a great height and distilling it. It's what writers do, I suppose. Get up on the balcony and look down. Um, Indeed. I don't think you're afraid of the bats in the bedroom. I think you've, you've been up against much, much worse in these years, but equally so, it's never never that great. Uh, it sounds like a phenomenal story to research and to find the letters and sort of personal diaries, which are the reflections, the real reflections, because you tend in a letter not to be so censored, you know, and so on. I think that would be really interesting. And of course, someone who starts a foreign correspondent as a he then turns into, you know, the the correspondent, I suppose, as a she, and, and all of the complexities and, of course, barriers that one faces. And this is the authorized biography so you are very much in contact with the family and i can't imagine that families are easy to deal with well the history of authorized biographers and um, their relationship with the estate is littered with corpses um uh but Jan has four adult children. Well, obviously they're my age, aren't they? And then, um, and they're um, they're they're uh, extremely helpful, cooperative, and delightful. And yes. um, all they want is for a um, true record to be set down. And so far, such a thing exists. So, um, uh, really, being authorised, the key thing about that. Well, two two key things. One is is copyright, having access to copyright, being able to quote everything, published and unpublished. That's a key thing. And then secondly is having the cooperation of the family, which is Jan's children and um, nieces and nephews. Um, yeah, and I hope that, um, you know, I hope, well, I hope that I can do a good job and that, they're, that they could be, I mean, they won't like all of it, but I don't really, I don't need them to like it. I need them to think that it's, yeah. what do I need them to think? Oh, that it's a true portrait. So, so when are we expecting to see that on the bookshelves? Right. Well, we can expect to see it, Richard, in 2026, which is Jan's centenary, centenary of her birth. And that's a great thing for me that I got that deadline because it really does have to come out then. I know. So that's that's, that's good. Yeah. Deadlines I'm are important. <laughs> planning to um, write next year. I'm researching at the moment. I'm planning to write next year. Okay. Well, I mean, we wish you everyone. We all wish you all the best, and I will definitely have it on my list of, of of books to read and to purchase in the coming years because this just sounds so fascinating. And again, that period of change in the 1950s, and if you're in the in the Middle East, the cultural uh, wealth at that time, you know, you think of Baghdad or you think of Kabul, which were countries, I mean, cities within these countries, which are just I mean, phenomenal places to visit, I think. Uh, yeah, she spent a lot of time in both of those places, Kabul and uh, Baghdad. I, I can imagine. I lots of yeah, definitely too. Well, I'm not going to take up any more of your time. Uh, I, I found this truly, truly uh, stimulating conversation. And I wish and I hope that my listeners out there 
will pick up Glowing Still. It's available as an audio book as well as, you know, a physical book to read. So please check it out. You know, Sarah Wheeler, writer, uh, Glowing Still or anything. And I personally recommend the, 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 the Cherry book because, of course, I read that prior to visiting well, I guess as I'm in Colombia, I should say Las Malvinas, but if we were in England, we'd say the Falklands. But I read it prior to going down there once, and, and it uh, put a lot of things into perspective for me. But thank you so much for your time, Sarah. It really has been a, a, a real pleasure to chat to you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to talk to you, Richard. Yeah, definitely. And I hope to see you back here in Colombia at some point in the future, perhaps oh. doing the, the book tour for the Jan Morris. Oh, longing to come back. <laughs> Uh, you can come to the uh, Feria del Libro in Bogota and present the book. Oh, I'd love to. Uh, it's that. a big, it's the second biggest uh, book fair in, in Latin America behind uh, Guadalajara. So it's a big deal. Right? Yeah, oh, right? yeah, I'd love that. I'd love that. So, so we'll, we'll, work, we'll work on that for you there, uh, right. Sarah. And so, everyone, glowing still, buy it, listen to it, everything else. We've been talking to Sarah Wheeler, writer here on episode 479 of the Columbia Calling podcast. It has been a great conversation, as I know you'll all agree. Please, if you want to uh, support the Columbia Calling podcast, uh, that's at www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. And you can you know, throw us a little tip there. Now over to some messages from our sponsors, and we will be back next week with more interesting conversations about or related to Colombia. The Colombia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region, Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's www.columbiacalling.co, or the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's www.bnbcolombia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive Colombian adventure. So that's bnbcolombia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. Con chinchorro y atarra.